Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be together, for the opportunity to open the Word of God, to look in it, its precious truths, to allow these truths to wash over our minds and purify us, cleanse us. Um, but also, Lord, I pray for, I pray, Lord, that these truths will work their way out into our lives. That this would not just be a theology on a, a book or on a paper or something that we just check off on, sign off on, but it would be a theology that that is affecting us every day. It affects our attitudes, affects our our thinking, and, and it renews our mind. Lord, we pray to that end, that this would not just be a lecture, but this would be truth going forth and changing and molding the lives of your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Normally, I move my way through a passage, uh, usually going verse by verse, uh, many times phrase by phrase. But this uh, today, I want to present a theology. A theology. Now, that's something that you don't see very often because it's hard to get a theology all in one sermon. But uh, we're going to try to do that uh, today. And it's a theology of the rapture. And we've gone through the book of Revelation. One thing that we haven't talked about too much is uh, the rapture and what our church believes in the rapture, uh, believes about the rapture. We're going to address that today. Now, the idea of a rapture really is an incredible idea. It's, it's just kind of far-fetched, you might think. It's very intriguing. This idea, uh, the believers from every corner of the globe will meet Christ in the air in a twinkling of an eye. That's just, just think about that. It's, a, it's an amazing concept, an amazing thought, where people being there one minute, and they're not there the next minute. Their clothes are, are laying down. They've been transformed. They're, they're, they're no longer there. Their bodies are up with Christ, been a transformed bodies. Those who are driving cars, those who are driving in planes, many times the planes are going to crash, the cars are going to crash. And there's chaos, obviously, on the earth that's, that's left behind, and, and that's going to create a worldwide panic. Leadership. Uh, from all the different countries are going to jump into action and reorganize the world. Satan, of course, is going to be there to provide some reasonable explanation for the missing people. And then the world will get back to some type of normalcy. And that's what we're asked to believe in, in a rapture. And then, of course, then immediately the tribulation starts. Now, it's an idea that has kind of gone out of vogue because of the rise of covenantal theology, which there's good parts to covenantal theology, but they would say there's no such thing as a rapture in Scripture. In fact, it's just fantasy. It's just fairy tale. It's, it's Hollywood. It's an imagination of, uh, of just, you know, Christians that have kind of gone crazy with this whole eschatology thing. And they, they kind of make fun of it. That's the, that's the climate that we find ourselves today. But I have some arguments for the rapture that I want us to think through today. I believe in the rapture. The, the church, Daniel's Bible Church, holds to the idea of a rapture. And I, I want to uh, present to you some of the, just some of the evidences of that. We believe that it's clear 
evidence in Scripture that Christ will someday come and He will remove His church from this world prior to the tribulation period. In fact, just, just before the tribulation period. Let me give you four reasons that we should look for a rapture. Four reasons that we should look for a rapture. We're just going to move through these quickly. Number one, it is a distinct, this rapture is a distinct event found in Scripture. It's a distinct event found in Scripture. Now, there's three different passages that I want to move through. First, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. The rapture is a specific event that we see in Scripture. But what happens is many times people confuse it with the end of time when, when Christ returns and establishes His kingdom. They, they confuse it with His second return, His second coming at the end. Now we would agree that there is going to be a second return, a second coming of Christ, where He comes to earth, establishes His kingdom, and He comes to us. And we would agree that there is going to be that. But before that, there is a rapture. And many times people confuse the two. And we think there's two separate events here. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to his disciples. This is really just not too soon before he departs into heaven. But he says this. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's believe on a daily basis. In my Father's house are, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now, he says, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. In verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus says, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you there, and I'm going to come back for you and receive you. You get the picture, receive you into myself, and we're going to go up there, and uh, you're going to be always with the Lord, always with me, where I am. You get the picture. So you have them in heaven. He comes down uh, not to join us. He comes in in the clouds just to receive us up. That's the terminology. That we see here. He receives us up. There's another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this is an argument just from the evidence of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse verse 20. Now there's a an argument here that Paul is laying out for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood did cannot inhabit or inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We are living in this physical bodies. We cannot inherit an an imperishable world, the heavenly world. Our bodies have to be changed. And that's what he's saying. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we will all be changed. There's going to be a transformation in our bodies. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Now, where have we heard that before? A moment, a twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump will sound and the dead will rise imperishable. Their bodies have already changed. They're going to be coming from all over the place, from the sea and the ground. And they've got a little bit further to go. And so their bodies are going to start first. And then we who are alive, we're going to be caught up and we are going to be changed. That's the point. Verse 53 
For this perishable must put on imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. We have to go through a transformation. You get the point there. I'll go at First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. So it's a distinct event in those two passages. Something going to happen in a twinkling of an eye, just in a moment. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're just going to look at verse 15. The whole passage was read to us earlier by Tim. Verse 15, for this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we will, we who are alive and remain, we, we haven't died, we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So he's coming, he's talking about the right, the context here is he's coming, coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to go up. And that was their concern. That what about those who have already died? He says, don't worry about them. We're not going to precede them. They're gonna, not going to be left out. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ. Those who have died in Christ will rise first. It's the same terminology we saw before. Verse 17. Then, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Now that's the key term. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. With them, by the way, that's Christ and with all of these uh, that have died in Christ and we caught up in the clouds. Right now, that is the domain of Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. Christ is coming down to earth, down to the clouds to escort us up. No intervention. Satan cannot touch us. Christ is right there. Even though we're in Satan's territory, he's going to come. We're going to go right up in a twinkling eye, just, just like that. And then we, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. It's the same idea that Christ gave. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now you get the, you get the point. It's, it's a distinct event. It's not, it cannot be just lumped together. And I have a lot of dear brothers that, uh, that believe that it's just kind of lumped together at the end. But I believe in a rapture that Christ is going to come down halfway. He's going to come in the clouds and he's going to bring us up and he's going to take us up to be with him. Now, I believe there's eight distinctions. This is from Dr. Mayhew and his theology. But he's got eight distinct points here of distinction between the, the rapture and the second coming. The rapture and the second coming. Two distinct things. And he's, here, here they are. Number one. The rapture, the rapture, Christ is going to come in the air. And the second coming, Christ is coming all the way to the earth. Number two, the rapture, Christ is going to gather his own. He's going to call us up. We're going to go. Look at the picture in the front of your bulletin. You see the picture. He is there. We're all going to go up with him. And the second coming, his second coming, his angels are actually going to gather the elect. We see that in Matthew chapter 24. At the rapture, number three, the rapture. He's going to come to reward. That's the context. It's always about reward and there's joy and that kind of thing. At the second coming, he is going to come to judge. And that's what we see. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. Number four, at the rapture, we have the, the resurrection is prominent in those passages. But in the second coming, there's no resurrection even mentioned. 
Number five, another distinction, is during the rapture, believers will depart from the earth, and the unbelievers, uh, in, in the second coming, the unbelievers are going to be taken away from the earth. They're going to be killed and, and taken away. Number six, the unbelievers, those who are sinners, uh, not in Christ, they're going to be remaining here on the earth. At the second coming, the believers will be remaining here on the earth. Uh, small distinction, but I want you to know that. Number seven, there's no mention at the rapture, there's no mention of Christ establishing his kingdom on earth. There's no mention of that. All those verses that we, we mentioned, he didn't say anything about establishing his kingdom here. At the second coming, though, when he comes, he will establish. And there's verses, all kinds of verses about him establishing his kingdom here on earth. Number eight, then at the rapture, the believers will uh, receive glorified, changed, transformed bodies at the rapture, and at the end time, there's been nothing that's said about a transformed body, glorified body. So we see two distinct things. And we cannot merge these two together. It's important that we see these as two distinct things. Now, what's the real issue here? The real issue for me, with my dear brothers, and I, I love, uh, there's a lot of people that, that I know and went to school with that don't believe in a rapture. I, I, they're still dear brothers. They're not... Uh, uh, I think they're just in error in this point. And I believe that's the real issue, is they're not being careful with Scripture. They're kind of just lumping all the, anything to do with the, the uh, eschatology, kind of lump it in the, in the end, and, and that's just, just all going to take place at that time. But we have to be careful with Scripture. Because man's tendency is to not be careful. That's the, that's the way it is. We're just not careful. We tend to be lazy and we tend to kind of have our theology in our mind. And then we go to Scripture and we kind of look at Scripture. And we kind of pull our, the verses that kind of fit our theology. And we ignore the other passages. We don't, we don't think of them carefully. But theology, and you need to understand this, theology is, um, is all that God says on a particular issue. You pick out any issue... And we find out, well, what does God think about that? And we have to read the whole of Scripture to find out what God thinks about a particular issue. And that's a theology. That's a theology. It's kind of like a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle. During the winter months, we, we will work a jigsaw puzzle. And I say we loosely. Because that jigsaw puzzle, we dump the pieces out there and it sits on the coffee table. And Daddy is the one who goes and has to work all those puzzle pieces. And usually it's a thousand piece puzzle. And what I have to do is I have to look at the box, at the picture, the big picture. And then I look at each one of these little pieces, mind boggling. And you, you look at the color, you look at the stripes, you look at all the stuff that, that's in that one piece. And say, where does that go? And you fit that in. And that's what we're doing with the theology. We're looking all through scripture. Does that fit here? Does that fit over there? And many times when you're developing a theology, we would fit a puzzle piece in. We, we think, oh, it should go there. And sometimes I'll say, sweetheart, go get the hammer. And I just want to make that piece fit. And we can't do that, right? I mean, that doesn't, it's not going to, it's going to look weird. We have to find out what God says about the issue. And sometimes there's, dis, there's details that we, we tend to leave out. Many times because of our laziness. And I, I make this point because that's exactly what Israel did in the Old Testament. We talked about this uh, on Wednesday night. They saw all of the, 
the verses that made Jesus look like the coming king. And he's going to conquer. And boy, they would love those verses, but they would neglect the verses of him being a servant or him dying. And so we have to be careful. Israel did it, and we could do the same thing. So the, the application, obviously, is for all of us, is to, to be very, very careful with our study of Scripture. And not just, not just kind of just, oh, well, it's just love everybody, and everything's going to work out. No. We have to think. We have to work our way through with theology. Now, number two. So, the rapture is a distinct event, not uh, to be confused with the second coming. Number two. There's there's no warnings in Scripture to the church concerning the tribulation. Now, this is a, an argument from silence. The Bible doesn't say anything, and so we can deduce some things here. It's an argument from silence. Turn over to uh, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, if you're in Thessalonians, uh, just a few pages over. Titus chapter 2, and uh, let me read this passage for you. Uh, let me start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Okay. Salvation's brought to all men, not, not meaning everybody's going to be saved, and everybody has an opportunity. Right? To all men, instructing us to put off godly, ungodliness, put on godliness. How do you do that? What's the motivating factor? What's the driving factor? Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to to, uh, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. He has chosen us out. We are his people. We are his church and what drives us and what drives his church is that he could come at any moment. That's Paul's emphasis in this passage. What we don't see here, there's no um, preparatory warning here about a tribulation. There's in the epistles, a lot of Paul's writings, there's, all, there's warnings all over the place. There's warnings about everything, but you don't see any warnings about a tribulation. We're not warned to prepare to enter into or to be, to, to really endure this, this hour of testing that's coming upon the earth. In fact, just the opposite, isn't it? It's just the opposite. Paul was anticipating, like at any moment, that Christ could come back and receive us. And that's the point. That's the whole that's the whole attitude or the whole tenor in um, the New Testament is that Christ could come back at any moment. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ, right? That's who we're looking for. Now, he would have given us a lot more detail about this Antichrist guy so that if uh, we see this guy, then we would know, right? If we're going to have to go through the tribulation, but it's an argument from silence. And he's, he is saying that uh, what we're looking for next is Christ, an imminent return of Christ. And the only thing that, that satisfactorily explains this is that there is a rapture. That before Christ comes to establish His kingdom, He is going to come in the air, take up His people off of this earth, and take them to be with Him. And we, and that's what you would expect with it. 
Because he is the, the shepherd of his sheep and, and he loves his sheep. And he would have prepared them. But next, or what we see is, is that we are blessed. In fact, looking for the blessed hope. Our hope is a blessed hope. It's not just a hope. This is a hope that's rooted in the fact that He will return for us. And we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We Again, we don't look for an antichrist. We look for Christ. And Jesus said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, if we were going to go through a tribulation, he might say, look, there's some difficult times going to come here in the tribulation. Better prepare yourself for this. But he doesn't say that. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. And he says, here, we have a a hope, blessed hope, a blessed hope. Now, what's the difference? What difference does it make? Because Christ is going to come ultimately anyway. Well, there's no dark cloud concerning the tribulation in the New Testament. It's not there. There's there's a joy that is produced. Even from the Holy Spirit. We have this Holy Spirit living within us and He produces this joy. And this is not some happy-go-lucky optimism, this superficial optimism, but it has an effect on our life in that we're living out this truth that Christ could come at any moment. And that's what we're doing. We're living out this truth. In fact, what we see is this fact motivates us, and it's feeding our hope. That's the description that Paul's giving here. We're driven toward godliness, to put on godliness, and put away ungodliness. How? By looking for this hope. That's what drives the believer. This hope. And it's based on, rooted in, a a rapture. A rapture. Now, what does this mean for us? Just exactly what Paul is saying. He is comforting one another. We have a hope um, that is blessed. Jesus you know, said, don't let your heart be troubled. There's grace here. We don't go around with doom and gloom waiting for, waiting for the tribulation to start. It, we are motivated, motivated by a joy and anticipation of Christ's return. Now we have to appropriate that though. This becomes for us a means, a means of joy. We have to think through that. In fact, that's why Paul is saying this. He interjects these little comments throughout the New Testament. Remember, Christ is going to come at any moment. He could come. And that's part of our joy. That's part of just applying these things to our lives as we think through them. It produces within us a joy. A joy that does not die. In fact, in other places, what was read for us earlier is, we may grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who have hope. There's going to be times that that hope is is seems to be far away. But as we think through these things, last night I found myself with this just just in my heart's grieving things and I, and, and I, I have to just mentally think these things through okay Christ could return at any moment and I'm telling myself that and I'm thinking about that my focus is on that and my whole attitude my whole attitude changed let me tell you the truth of God's word can do that it's a powerful thing if if we allow it to just saturate our minds and dwell on these things, think about these things, this, this blessed hope that we have. 
Let's go on. There's no warning in Scripture about the church going through the, the tribulation. Number three, the rapture of the church best fits the chronology, the timeline of the book of Revelation. Again, this is an argument from silence. This is something that's not there. The best place to, to go for this is, of course, the book of Revelation. So if you would, turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I want to quickly just do a review of the book of Revelations. And we, we've gone through it. It's taken us, taken us a, a while. We've gone through this book. So all of this should be familiar to you, but it'll be in, in just 20 bullet points as we move through this. Chapter 1. John was approached and he was said, he was told to write these things down. What you, uh, what you have seen and what the things that are and the things that are to come. And in chapter two and three, we see that these are letters, seven letters to the churches. You see Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. You see all these letters and each one of them have an encouragement, a little bit of a warning to all of these letters. Chapters 4 and 5, you see then a worship scene in heaven as Christ is getting ready to uh, the Lamb. He is the only one qualified to take the seal, the, the title deed of the earth. And He takes that seal and there's just rejoicing in heaven because He is willing and able to do that. And in chapter 6, as He opens that seal, you have all of these um, this is a, a flood of judgment coming forth as God, as Christ is going to take control of the earth. And you see wars and famines and death and martyrs as a result. The first, though, is a judgment of peace. Now that sounds kind of strange, but this, this time, artificial time of, of peace that's there. And it's a temporary peace, but even that peace is part of God's judgment. From the very beginning of the tribulation, you see that. And then you have these seven seals, more seals that are poured out. In chapter 7, you have a a great revival scene that's pictured here. You have 144,000 Jews that have come to know Christ. They recognize their Savior. There's these two witnesses at the temple as well. And there's this great revival during this tribulation period. And during this time, you have the Antichrist agreeing, uh, making this agreement with Israel for about two and a half, uh, for three years, about the middle of that tribulation period. And then that's broken. And you have more judgments, more waves of judgments as God's, uh, the trumpet judgments are more severe, more intense as God pours out His wrath upon man. In chapter 9, Chapter 9, you have the bottomless pit open, the pit, uh, the abyss, and it's open and it's unleashed all of these demons and they're torturing mankind on the earth. Chapter 10 then is John's uh, commissioning service. It's important to take all of these, this message to this world. And, and he's, there's grieving along with bittersweet here. And in chapters 11 to 15, you have the witnesses and the rise of the Antichrist. These witnesses are, are killed by this Antichrist. The Antichrist and is the beast and the false prophet. And the world essentially is worshipping them. And it's uh, Satan, the, the dragon. And uh, he is uh, pursuing Israel. Israel is God's representation upon the earth. And you have more judgment, the bold judgments. More of God's fierce wrath coming upon them. Upon man, and 
in verse in chapter 16 you have this final crushing blow of the bold judgment you have lamenting in chapters 17 and 18 and the battle of Armageddon where the beast and all of his army and the kings of the earth they come up against Christ and they're just crushed there's not much of a battle it's just a final blow chapter 19 you, then you see Christ return and you see great rejoicing in heaven at the marriage supper of the lamb and then you see Christ with all of his glory coming with his saints and he establishes his kingdom in chapter 19 and and doom is upon the the beast and the false prophet they're the first ones to be thrown into the lake of fire and then in chapter 20 you have satan you see him weak and pathetic and defeated And he's bound and put into the abyss for a thousand years while Christ reigns on his earth. And he reclaims the earth. And at the end, though, chapter 20, Satan is released and he goes during this tribulation, the end of this uh, millennial thousand year reign of Christ. At the end of that, he gathers the nations again. They think they can win against Christ. And so they come up against Christ. And again, there's a quick battle at the uh, capital city. And all of them are destroyed by fire. And then you have in verse chapters 21, 22, you have the new heaven and the new earth. And you see Christ in all of His glory united with God the Father in its brilliant colors and then the new temple that is there in the new Jerusalem. Now, again, an argument from science. We've gone through the whole book of Revelation. The first three chapters, the word church is mentioned 19 times. 19 times. After that, though, uh, verse chapter 4, all the way to chapter 19, the church is never mentioned. During the tribulation period, the church is never mentioned. It's never described. There's never any, uh, any warnings concerning the church in that time. You say, well, what, what is going on? Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Because this explains it. This kind of pulls everything together. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. This was a promise uh, of Christ to the church. In uh, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that is that hour that is about to come upon the whole earth, to test those who dwell on the earth. as, as As a blessing, as a blessing to those who have persevered, those who have continued and been faithful to God, he says, I will keep you from. I'm going to keep you out of. I'm not going to preserve you within that tribulation period. I'm going to keep you from it, out of it. If your translation has uh, something different there, they're misinterpreting that word. The word is to, to keep out of. And what is it? This hour of testing. An hour has a beginning and it has an end. This isn't just generic uh, tribulation upon the earth. No, this is an hour, a specific time of testing on the earth. And it's toward the unbeliever. It's not toward the believer. It's toward the unbeliever. He says, I'm going to keep you out of that. This intense pressure of God's wrath coming upon the earth. And it's global. What you also see here, then the church is going to be taken out. But God has a representative. On the earth. And who is it? It's the Jews. It's the Jews. God then turns his attention. His church is gone. God then turns his attention to the Jews. 
And that's exactly what we see prophesied by Paul in Romans chapter 11. That uh, the attention, they are God's representatives on the earth. And there's this massive evangelism going on, massive revival going on, especially amongst the Jews. So much so that the whole nation, probably not every single one, but the whole nation essentially turns to Christ. And Satan, of course, then has someone to fight. And the focus is upon not the church, but upon Israel. They are his representatives. They are his witnesses here upon the earth. That's interesting. And it's, again, it's an argument from silence, but I think it's a pretty strong argument. The only thing that fits is is a rapture that the church has taken up before this tribulation time. You know, let's just apply this a little bit. Let's apply this. This is God's grace. God sees our perseverance here on this earth. He sees that. He says that those who persevere, my perseverance, those who continue to persevere, I'm going to keep you from this hour. That is a precious promise that we have. This act of God's grace. He says, I'm going to keep you from this. It's, it's God's grace. Now let me ask you this. This is a personal question. You have to think about this yourself. Can you trust God? Do you trust Him? Now, the question is, do you trust Him? We can trust Him. In fact, what we do is we think, oh yeah, I'll trust Him to keep me out of the tribulation. I could trust him there. Do you trust him on a daily basis? Now, he's aware of what's going to happen to, to these, this church. Um, and he says, I'm going to keep you from that. He's a good shepherd there. He loves his people. He loves his people. And he cares for them. He doesn't want to see them go through this hour of testing now, if he is, is willing to do that, do you think that he can, that you can trust him for daily things? Every day, day in, day out, just trusting the Lord. Just trusting the Lord. If he is loving, if he is gracious to you, if you are one of his prized possessions, then do you think in your mind, do you think through that, you know what, Lord, you said you're going to do it then, can you take care of me now? So often we, we think we can't. So often we, we live as though God, God doesn't like us anymore or something. Oh yeah, He's going to take care of the future, but what about now? What about... I love the song that we just sang. Sometimes we're cold. Sometimes things don't feel right in our spiritual life. Sometimes we're, we drift. But what do we say? He will hold me fast. Can we trust Him? He will hold me fast. He knows what I can handle. He knows what I can go through. You say, why in the world does He take us through these trials? That's not the tribulation. There's a big difference between our daily little trials and troubles than this hour of testing that's about to come up on the earth. He takes us through these little trials, these daily things that we go, that go on in our life. Why? To test our faith. To strengthen us. To cause us to depend upon Him more. That's our perseverance now is there on a daily basis. We just persevere. We just persevere through the, the difficult times of life. They've shown, we show ourselves to be faithful in that. So we don't even have to go through the tribulation. In fact, the tribulation is not really for us. It's God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. He doesn't need to pour His wrath out. But He will take us through some difficult times on the earth, to strengthen us, to stretch our faith, to make us stronger. It's what happens when you work out with muscles. 
Your muscles, your faith muscle gets stronger and stronger. Yet we say, Lord, I don't want to. You ever seen these guys in the gym that, man, it just seemed to be so weak? I'm one of them. And, you know, they're, they're there. And there's this one commercial I see on TV. And this, this guy's pushing, doing these push-ups. And you look on the barbells and there's like five pounds on the barbells. There's like nothing. Anybody, a baby could lift it up. And, that, and that's sometimes I, I think what we're, we do. We just think, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. He will hold you fast. Trust him. Exercise your faith. Number four, we've got to move quickly. A rapture best fits the book of Revelation. And then number four. A rapture assures that there will be people to populate the millennial kingdom. Now, this is just an argument from logic. This is just reasonably thinking these things through. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 19 and 20, what you see is Christ coming to earth. And when he comes, he conquers, right? He conquers. He kills all the unbelievers. Kills all the unbelievers. All those who are not trusting in him. The only ones on the earth are those who are, who have, uh, are, who are believers, who have trusted in him during that tribulation time, who were not martyred, who were not killed. They survived the, this, this, um, uh, yeah, uh, seven year tribulation time. They were not, they were not killed. And so they still have their physical bodies. So are their physical bodies. And remember all the verses that we talked about being transformed? They're not transformed yet. All the unsaved, they're taking out. This is at the end, the second coming. They're taken out. And all of those who are still believers going through that tribulation period, they're still here. They're actually like a special group. And they're held up as a, a hall of fame. Those are, those are really precious people that have been able to go through that tribulation period. Many of them are Jews, but not just all of them. And they have children. Now, they can have children because they haven't had their transformed bodies. In heaven, we will not have that option. There will be no marriage or given in marriage, Jesus said. But those who are still on the earth, they will have, be able to have children. And, but their, their bodies haven't been transformed. Remember that? They're still, they're, they're Christians, but they're still in their sin. Or sinful bodies, you might say. Still in their sinful bodies. They still have habits. The residual effect of sin. They still have habits of, uh, of sinful habits they haven't broken. Uh, their sinful ways of thinking. And when we come to earth, when we come to earth, and by the way, they cannot enter into the eternal state unless their bodies have been transformed. Remember that. But when, when Christ comes back, we're going to rule with Him. Who are we going to rule over? If the unbelievers are taken out, and the unbelievers are taken out, and there's this great massive rapture, a rapture takes all the believers up, then who's left? There's nobody left on the earth. But if there's a rapture, if there's a rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, then those who are saved during the tribulation will still be on the earth unless they were killed. And they will populate the millennial kingdom. They will populate the millennial kingdom. And that's just logical. And we, when we come, we will rule over them for a thousand years. We will judge them. We will help them to see these things. They're in their limited state. Now, the, the rapture helps us to fit all of these things into a big picture. 
This is a theology of the rapture. But it makes sense. When you look at the big picture, I I say, yeah, I I agree with that. And, And the Bible seems to support a rapture. And it's not so uh, silly anymore. But it's real. It's real. It might seem fanciful. Hollywood might make a big movie of it. It seems to be like that kind of stuff today or all these apocalyptic movies. And of course, the people that don't believe in a rapture, they kind of make fun of that. When you look at Scripture, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. It's supported by Scripture. It's part of God's story. It's part of God's story. It's part of God's big puzzle. And we dare not leave out any little sections of the puzzle. What happens? And I already mentioned the puzzle thing in our family. There's usually, if you get to the end of the puzzle, there's what? It's always one piece, what? It's gone. It's missing. The dog ate it or... Most likely, though, if there's a piece missing, I go to all the family members and I say, do you have the piece of the puzzle? Because everybody likes to hold on to one little piece so that they can be the last one to put the puzzle piece in, right? And it drives Daddy crazy because I'm looking and trying to put this piece of the puzzle together. You know what I mean. You leave out the rapture, you're leaving out a pretty big chunk. You say, well, that's small. It really, it might be small whether we go to the tribulation. The Lord can protect us in there. Yeah, yeah. It might be a small piece, but it's a piece. And it's a piece, uh, it's a picture of God's grace. And it brings a lot of hope to us. A lot of hope. It, it, it causes us to anticipate Christ's return at, at any moment. And it's the next thing on God's agenda is for Christ to come. And so we look for Christ at any moment. And any day. And it brings joy to our life. It brings hope to just everyday trials. Everyday trials. And, and we see God's grace. See God's grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the patience of these people. As we've moved through these difficult things, as we thought through them, I pray, Lord, again, that this would be part of our thinking, be part of our life. Uh, what a joy to have this information, to understand and know that you will come and personally escort us to this place of glory where we will be always with you. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.